Mark chapter 11. We're going to be reading uh, beginning at verse 11, uh, which is a repeat from uh, actually last week. That was the final verse of the passage we were looking at. And then through verse 19. The focus of our attention will be simply on verses 15 through 19, but it's important to have the entire context as we begin this morning. So, hear the word of God, Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 to 19. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this passage this morning, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would uh, illuminate our minds and our hearts, uh, guide us into your truth. Enable us to understand the things which Mark is writing, which your Holy Spirit, you, the Holy Spirit, has inspired. We would ask Almighty God that uh, in understanding these things, it would be with the deepest kind of understanding, that which uh, moves within our hearts a desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, to walk uh, in the ways that we're supposed to walk as citizens of the kingdom, uh, with a desire to be salt and light, uh, even faithful witnesses to Jesus to this generation. So we pray that your word to us today would be a means of grace for our lives in this world and also as a preparation as we come to the table this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this story about Jesus clearing out the temple, which is also recorded by Matthew and Luke, Uh, is the second time that Jesus did this. Uh, Jesus also cleared out the temple at the beginning of his ministry, but only John's gospel records that, which is not surprising because there are any number of things that John records that only John records and any number of things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention that, that John has chosen not to. Now, this first clearing out of the temple, uh, takes place in John's Gospel early on in chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. And there are a few but significant differences between the first cleansing of the temple and the last cleansing of the temple, so let me point some of these things out. You may have seen pictures 
uh, probably have seen pictures, uh, not actual photographs, of Jesus cleansing the temple, right? You've probably seen this in Christian books and Christian literature, Jesus cleansing the temple. But here's what you need to know. Uh, You've seen those pictures, uh, overturning the money changers' tables, Jesus with the whip in his hand driving out the oxen and the sheep. But the whip is only mentioned in John's Gospel. Uh, the oxen and the sheep only mentioned in God in John's Gospel. Um, Matthew and Mark only mention doves or pigeons. Both do mention the money changers. So sometimes uh, the pictures that we see actually conflates these two distinct things that Jesus did, one at the beginning of his ministry and the other at the end. Now, also what Jesus said with respect to the cleansing of the temple was different on both occasions. In the first, Jesus said this, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. When challenged by the Jews, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, those are very, very significant words. Christ identifying himself as the true temple of God. Christ basically challenging the Jews If you destroy this body, meaning himself, he will raise it up in three days. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention them at all connected with the cleansing of the temple as they record it as part of Passion Week. Uh, They also don't mention, uh, but they do mention, in contrast to John's Gospel, two very significant Old Testament prophecies, one out of Isaiah 56, the other out of Jeremiah chapter 7, and we'll look at those later. But what they don't say is destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Yet, at the trial of Jesus, which is going to happen later in Passion Week, at the trial of Jesus, both Matthew and Mark record false witnesses, which the chief priests brought forward against Jesus. And listen to this. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus, to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. Now, What is significant about that? Well, if Jesus had just said those things a few days earlier during Passion Week when he cleansed the temple, if he had said anything about destroying the temple or the temple being destroyed and then it being raised up in three days, who would have heard that testimony? Well, the chief priests and the scribes. They were right there when Jesus cleansed the temple. Uh, there would not have been any need to call false witnesses to try to remember something they heard three years earlier to try to present a charge and accusation against Jesus. 
So that's why they were unable to, to agree, because they had heard something Jesus had said three years earlier when he first cleansed the temple, but the chief priests and scribes had never heard that, or they would have used it against Jesus. So what this demonstrates is that clearly there were two different distinct cleansings of the temple. The first at the beginning, the second at the last, sort of the inauguration of the ministry of Christ, then the culmination of the ministry of Christ. But the real question in all of this is once we understand this was like the parenthesis or the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry, the real question is why? Why did Jesus do this? What did this mean? What was the significance of beginning his opening ministry, closing his public ministry with similar kinds of actions, though things said were in fact different? Both cleanses of the temple were judgment statements against Israel. That's the main idea. And that's the main concern as we look at verses 15 to 19 this morning. Judgment statements against Israel. But what can we learn from this story about judgment. That's what we want to arrive at. What can we learn about these judgment statements against Israel? What's the message? What's the significance of this action that Jesus performs? What's the meaning and significance of that action and what it means for us today who desire to follow Jesus? His concerns should always be our concerns as well as they would apply to us today. So, in the first place, what we, what we need to see out of this passage is that the cleanse in the temple was, in fact, an act of judgment. And the passage itself will tell us that. Secondly, we need to see, well, why did Jesus then act this way in this form of judgment? Why did he act this? Why did he do this? And then thirdly, what does this really teach us today? This, this whole story, what does it really teach us today about being the church? So I want to begin with this act of cleansing as an act of judgment. And here I believe that we can actually trust the conclusions of any number of good, solid, Bible-believing scholars who point out that in Mark's gospel, he specifically sandwiches and this story between the cursing of the fig tree and then the next day after the cleansing of the temple and which we see the disciples remarking on the fact that the cursed fig tree has withered and died. What's the significance of that? Well, scholars, as we'll see next week, we'll get into this next week in detail, but scholars will say, look, the fig tree was one of the significant symbols of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, God would compare Israel to a fig tree. So the fact that Jesus is doing this action isn't because as, gosh, you wouldn't believe what, what ugly things are you read about Jesus from liberal Bible critics. Uh, things like, oh, this is just another instance of Jesus going irrational on things and getting upset and, and using his powers to just... It's just crazy. Uh, it, honestly, it is, it is, it is, it's blasphemous and crazy. Jesus was acting exactly like the Old Testament prophets would act in a form of symbolism, but I'll get into that. The placing of this story between the two parts of the fig tree story means that there's a deep connection between these two stories. That the action that happens in the cursing of the fig tree is then repeated 
and the actions that Jesus takes within the temple. They're part of what Jesus is doing during the last week of his earthly ministry. But even independently from looking at the cursing of the fig tree, what Jesus does is clearly acting in judgment upon the temple and everything that the temple stood for. So let's look at the action itself. Now think about this. Try to picture this in your mind. It's a sudden and somewhat violent halt to the activities of the temple. Now this is what's most important about this halt to the activities of the temple. Both the illegitimate activities and it's a halt to the legitimate worship that's going on in the temple. Jesus brought a temporary halt to all of the temple activities. Now, you know that because Jesus wouldn't allow anything while he was teaching to pass through the temple. He just wouldn't let it happen. Jesus brought this temporary cessation of all temple activities, all the normal functions stopped. Now, the point is, if money changers can't operate then the sacrifices can't be purchased by the legitimate worshipers, and then the sacrifices themselves can't be offered. So what Jesus does is he halts the temple function. But the functioning of the temple was the central part of Israel's understanding of their relationship with God. The religious identity of Israel was entirely wrapped up in, their entire faith and practice wrapped up in the temple. And Jesus causes it to stop. Now, this was not a prelude to launching some kind of temple reform. Uh, Jesus didn't come to reform the temple. He didn't come to reform temple worship. Jesus came to replace it. Everything that was broken at that point in human history about temple worship could not be reformed. It could only be transcended in the sense in once something is a sign needs to find its fulfillment in what is real. Jesus didn't halt the temple activities so that people might say, hey, we need to clean up our act here and get things right. Jesus halted the temple activities because of what was going on that was wrong, but further in terms of his own life, his own body, his own sacrifice, being the fulfillment of everything that the temple stood for and pointed towards. So what's the meaning? What's the point of the action? It's symbolic without any question. It's prophetic as well. Halting all of the acti activity temporarily was symbolic of halting all of this activity permanently. Uh, halting not just the activity, but even the temple itself, which was going to happen in 40 years. In other words, Jesus did for a few hours what was going to happen permanently when the temple was destroyed, when the city of Jerusalem was overwhelmed and overtaken by the armies of Rome 
in A.D. 70. This was the prophetic symbolism involved in what Jesus was doing. It signaled God's judgment to come upon his ancient people. Now, what indicates this even more fully is that Old Testament prophecy indicates this is going to happen. And then as well, beginning of Mark 13, Jesus himself states that all of this is going to happen. So if you turn to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it's a passage we refer to often at Christmas time because it's prophetic of the coming of Christ. But listen to this. This is what God says through Malachi, his messenger. He says, Behold, I, God, send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Actually, you can put these words in the mouth of the Messiah. It's the Messiah who's actually saying, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, again, the Messiah, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, which is the Messiah, in whom you delight, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. But notice what he says next. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Now, so the earlier statement would be statements of salvation. When he talks about the refining of the sons of Levi, all symbolic of those who are truly priests of God, the priesthood of all believers, those all being refined. But then look at the contrast. I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now that prophecy then is directly linked to the very last words of the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, when Malachi finishes the message this way. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, Jesus acted in accordance with these prophetic words. The coming of Jesus to the temple was a partial fulfillment of God's judgment to come upon Israel with utter destruction. Well, then you look to Matt, to, uh, further on in the Gospel of Mark to chapter 13. So when on one of the days during Passion Week, when the disciples and, and Jesus leave the temple, know what Jesus says to his disciples. And as they came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, it's sort of sad that, the, that we today have very little historical knowledge 
about the city of Jerusalem and the temple uh, during Jesus' day. Uh, in all the empire of Rome, there was no city that had more wealth than Jerusalem. The treasury of the temple far surpassed the treasury of the empire's capital, Rome itself. It was the wealthiest city on the planet. And the buildings were among the most magnificent in the world at that time. And this is what Jesus says. So they're, they're looking at these wonderful buildings and so forth. It's, it's, well, they're right. Wonderful stones, wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In AD 70, when Jerusalem was overtaken and the temple was destroyed, because of the amount of gold and silver inlaid inside the temple in terms of its construction, everything was burned to melt out every ounce of silver and every ounce of gold. Everything was entirely dismantled by the Romans. The fulfillment of what Jesus said here took place in, 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 in almost a, a completely literal fashion. Now, to the disciples, though, and to the Jewish mind, to have the temple destroyed a second time since it had been destroyed back in 586 B.C., it would be the judgment of the worst sort. It would be God coming to strike the land with that decree of utter destruction. So even though Jerusalem appeared to be thriving, the temple appeared to be thriving, the greatness of the temple, the greatness of the treasury, all of that actually masked the deep spiritual and moral corruption that was deeply embedded in the people of Israel. So that leads into the second consideration. Why was this judgment going to happen? Why would God judge his ancient people, the Jews? Now, the reason begins with what Jesus says in verse 17, when he says, concerning the house of God, concerning the temple, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, that's not just some quaint phrase that Jesus coined at that particular time. No, he's quoting from a judgment passage in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. And so when he quoted this and the scribes and, and, and the chief priests are listening to him because they know the Old Testament so well, they're going to recognize the phrase as coming from a particular passage that concerned the temple and concerned the judgment that God was visiting upon his people at that point, which was going to bring about the destruction of the temple. It's all very deeply connected. And the Jewish mind being literate in the Bible, would have gotten that, would have understood that. But since we don't have those same connections with the Bible like they did, we will read from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, and then 8 through 15. So verse 4 says this, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. As though that mantra, that statement, that identification of the temple being their safety, being their security. Verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, 
and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of all the evil of the people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust... And to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight. Jesus didn't have to say all of that. Jesus didn't have to repeat all of that. All Jesus had to do was to give this little soundbite. You have made my house a den of robbers. And the chief priest would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. You're saying this temple is going to be destroyed. And you're saying that we are going to be scattered just like we were when the first temple was destroyed when King Nebuchadnezzar came and exiled us to Babylon. What Jesus did, what Jesus said, was judgment upon Israel. And why? Because in Jesus' day, the sins of Israel were every bit as serious as they were during the time of Jeremiah. God had seen it. That is why judgment is coming. Now, specifically, Mark in his gospel presents the chief sins of what the Jews were doing during Jesus' day. And if you think back to chapter 7 of Mark, what was the great criticism of Christ, of the religious system of the day, which is dominated mostly by the Pharisees and their teaching? It was legalism. Now, listen to what Christ says. And again, back in chapter seven, six to eight. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? Oh, by the way, hypocrites. Wasn't hypocrisy the sin that was going on in the temple back in Jeremiah's day? They would go to the temple and worship and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, while they were murdering and committing adultery and worshiping Baal and doing all those things. Sheer hypocrisy. So Jesus is saying to the Jews of his day, hypocrisy, this is your issue. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So the religion of the Jews at this time had fallen away from the faith that had saved Abraham and they had become legalist in the way they understood their relationship with God. Remember, legalism teaches us that we still have enough goodness inside of us to please God, that we're able to still please God by the things that we would attempt to do. We can be good enough for God. And if we think we're good enough to please God, then we are going to be blind to how sinful we truly are. 
We will overestimate the good that we think we can do. We will underestimate how deep the sinfulness is which afflicts us. Now, in that delusion, the Jews had fallen away from salvation through grace. The very thing God had revealed to Abraham is the very thing which they had long neglected. Now, their second great sin was the rejection of Jesus as God's true Messiah, while they accused him to be in league with the devil. That took place in Mark chapter 3, verse 2. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. Now, that was their, their narrative all the way through the ministry of Christ. And so in Israel, in the days of Jesus, we see the rejection of God's truth. We see the rejection of God's Son. But isn't this really a mirror? Not just of Israel, but isn't this really a mirror of fallen humanity? When you stop and understand what the Word of God says, you need to come to this conclusion. There is no person more hated in the last 2,000 years than Jesus Christ. No one has been more hated than Jesus. And in John's Gospel, this is described for us. Uh, John chapter 3, 18 to 20. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light came into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for the deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Finally, what, what does this teach us? When I sit down to think about this, the kinds of things that we might learn from this judgment could take us in lots and lots and lots of directions in terms of the great weaknesses of, of American Christianity, great weaknesses in the household of God in America. I even thought about bringing in the passage from First Peter where Peter says, and judgment begins with the household of God. But I went in a different direction. I thought, you know, Jesus says what the house of God is supposed to be. And maybe that's what we need to think about. Jesus quoted Isaiah 56, 7, where it says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Two points. God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Secondly, it's supposed to be for all nations. But if the temple is doomed to destruction, how is the teaching of Jesus, how is this prophecy of Isaiah ever to be fulfilled? The temple is going to be destroyed. During the Old Testament times, Jerusalem was never a house of prayer for all nations. During Jesus' time, the temple in Jerusalem was never a house of prayer for all nations. The court of the Gentiles kept 
the Gentiles out of the temple proper. And when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, what then would be made of this great statement of Isaiah? Well, our understanding has to be centered in the New Testament itself. And so we consider how this is understood by the New Testament. The key passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now listen to what Paul writes about these things. For through him, meaning Christ, we both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is saying that the Gentiles, all those who are non-Jews, along with the Jews, all of those who now believe in Christ, are joined together into a holy temple of the Lord, built together to be the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. The New Testament people of God is now the household of God. The New Testament people of God is the temple of the Lord. In the movie Thor Ragnarok, which is all about the doom and destruction of the realm of Asgard, the abode of the Norse gods, Odin says to his son Thor, Asgard isn't a place, it's a people. And even as Asgard is being destroyed, Thor reminds all of the surviving Asgardians that Asgard isn't a place, it's a people. Now, that's exactly what is going on in the coming of the new covenant, from the time in which the Holy Spirit baptized the church on the day of Pentecost, even though the physical temple was going to be destroyed in 40 years, the dwelling place of God was with his people. The New Testament teaches us that the temple of God is not a place. It is a people. It is the people in whom dwells the presence of the living God. Therefore, we are God's house. We are God's temple. The practical question is this. Are we also a house of prayer? Are we filled with God's spirit and God's presence? Are we truly a house of prayer? There are many things a small church cannot do. But there is never reason why a small church cannot truly be a house of prayer. And that is certainly our calling. God has delivered us from ourselves that we might be transformed by the gospel and live for Jesus, the one who lived and died for us. Even so, let us be his house. Let us be a house of prayer. Amen.